So, Luke, researching this episode was really hard for me. Why is that, Meg? Because I am terrified of sharks. And I had to look at a lot of photos of sharks while working on this episode. If you'll remember a couple months ago, there was an infographic floating around the internet. It was from GatesNotes.com, the blog of Bill Gates, and it depicted the world's deadliest animals. At the top, the mighty mosquito, which the graphic says accounts for 725,000 human deaths each year. And next was humans, ourselves, at 475,000 deaths a year. That's a sad fact in itself. And way down at the bottom of the list, after snakes, crocodiles, even elephants, is probably the world's scariest animal, the shark. You're not alone. Ever since Jaws came out, sharks have terrified us. That ominous fin, the rows and rows of teeth. There's even a name for our fear of sharks, galeophobia. Despite all their lore, all the fear that surrounds them, sharks killed just six people last year, according to the Florida Museum of Natural History's International Shark Attack File. And yes, this is a thing, and if you're as afraid of sharks as I am, you do not want to Google it. So, six deaths in 2015 from sharks, and according to this Gates infographic, an average of 10 human deaths per year caused by sharks. That's 70,000 times less deadly than the mosquito. 40,000 times less than our fellow humans. And 1,000 times less deadly than an animal you'd probably never even guess would be on the list. We're talking about killer snails. I'm Luke Timmerman. And I'm Meg Terrell, and you're listening to Signal. Today, we explore our perceptions of risk and how our outsized or undersized fears can affect our health. I've coined a phrase called the risk perception gap to describe the phenomenon you're asking about. The gap is when we worry too much or not enough. And as a result, those misperceptions become a risk all by themselves. That's David Ropeek, an author and consultant on risk perception and communication. We're going to bring you two examples, the shark and the snail, to help illustrate Ropeek's risk perception gap in medicine. But first, let's get back to the deadly snails. Certain types of freshwater snails, to be precise. It's because of a disease called schistosomiasis. And if you haven't heard of it, it may be because you live in the United States. And we don't have schistosomiasis here. It's considered one of the world's neglected tropical diseases, and it's found in parts of Africa, South America, and other areas. It's often connected to poverty and poor sanitation. And while we're blaming the snails here, it's actually parasitic worms carried by certain kinds of freshwater snails that cause schistosomiasis. People get the disease when they come into contact with water where those snails are living. The snails are just a temporary stop for the parasites between infecting humans. The parasitic worms take up residence in the body and can wreak havoc, prompting immune reactions and organ damage. That's what puts some humble freshwater snails so much higher up on the list of the world's deadliest animals. Though they don't seem scary, they're slow-moving, they're familiar, they account for 10,000 human deaths per year. In medicine, familiarity can lead us to underestimate the risk of certain diseases to our own detriment. Medicine is just one realm in which things could go wrong. That's what risk means. In fact, the very definition of risk is where we really ought to start. That's David Ropeek again. In the common usage, it's the 
possibility of something bad happening, the probability of an adverse event. Ropeek has been studying risk for decades. I'm an instructor at Harvard and author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Always Match the Facts. Risk is a feeling, not just a statistic. The probability of something bad going wrong is by definition the definition of a feeling way of relating to something. And our feelings can often get the better of us when it comes to perceiving health risks. A perfect example is cardiovascular disease. It's the number one cause of death in the United States, and there's lots we could do to help ourselves out. Eating better, exercising, perhaps taking medications, but we don't always do it. But to take a more acute problem that we may ignore or underestimate, let's look at the flu. Well, flu is a disease we should respect, if not fear. Dr. Bill Schaffner is an infectious diseases specialist at Vanderbilt University. And for the reasons he's about to share with us, flu is, in our world's deadliest animals analogy, our killer snail. Year in and year out, influenza visits our communities and sometimes creates a minor, but more often than not, a major epidemic of illness. To use large numbers, round about, on average, 200,000 hospitalizations each year and up to 30 and sometimes even 40,000 deaths. 200,000 hospitalizations each year, up to 40,000 deaths, and that's just in the United States. So, Luke, knowing those numbers, do you get a flu shot every year? I have to confess, no, not every year. And part of the reason is I rationalize that I'm a reasonably healthy middle-aged guy and that my flu risk is a lot lower. Most of the flu deaths happen in elderly people and younger people who have uh, compromised immune systems. I have to say, I also had never gotten a flu shot until this season. And the only reason I got one this time was because I was doing a story about flu shots. <laughs> but the more I've done research for both this story and, and actually that story, the more I realize I should just get a flu shot every year. Looking at these numbers, it's not just the risk to you or me, relatively healthy people in their 30s and 40s, but I kind of like to think about it as maybe it's helpful that I get the flu shot because then I can be less of a risk you know, to other people if I you know, carry the virus and I'm around older people or more vulnerable people, I guess. Well, that's right. And it's not just uh, the fear of death that we're talking about. I mean, realistically, it's the fear that you or I could easily be laid low for a whole week and miss a week of work. And I don't want to do that. And you probably don't either. But the numbers tell us we are not alone. It turns out less than half of Americans age six months and older. So six months is the age CDC starts recommending the flu shot actually get vaccinated. Among kids, the vaccination rate is higher, at 59%. Adults 18 and older are down at about 44%. So knowing how bad the flu can be, what explains our ho-hum response to it? It's familiar. David Ropeek again. A risk that's new, Zika virus, West Nile virus, ah! We're not familiar with that. And what not familiar means is we don't know how it's going to play out. And that uncertainty leaves us feeling, ooh, I don't know how to protect myself. And that powerlessness raises fear. Flu we've lived with forever. Another part of the issue of familiarity, as Dr. Schaffner points out, 
is that we refer to a lot of other things as flu, but they might not actually be influenza. In lay parlance, flu could be a cold or almost even an allergy or even a tummy upset. So flu is kind of a nebulous concept. Influenza doesn't really exist in the minds of most people out there. If you've actually got the flu, it's a lot worse than a bad cold. You just feel miserable. You just want to take to your bed, and you can barely lift your head. You've got aches all over. And if you are that sick, you can see how this virus can actually take over your body and make even an otherwise very robust person sick very quickly. Flu shots also require getting an actual shot, which deters a lot of people. Though for the truly needle-phobic, there is now a nasal spray version of the vaccine. And contrary to a popular myth out there, the flu shot cannot give you the flu. Repeat, cannot. That's malarkey. It's baloney. It doesn't exist. You cannot get flu from the flu vaccine. But there's still some folks who are concerned about that, and that puts them off getting the vaccine. But what about our lack of concern about flu? That lack of concern can kill me. Oh, and we should mention Dr. Schaffner took one issue with our comparison of flu to killer snails. Snails we think of as slow, whereas flu is fast. It makes you sick very quickly and can make you gravely ill, gravely ill, very, very quickly also. But other than that, I kind of like the metaphor. Thanks, Dr. Schaffner. Okay, we've explored the snails half of today's episode, but what about the shark? What out there in medicine do we fear more than the statistics tell us we should, and how does that affect our health? To help with our shark analogy, let's travel back to 1955 and an article published in Life magazine titled, A Plea Against Blind Fear of Cancer. By an oncologist saying, we're freaking out about this disease. In some cases, we're freaking out so much it's doing us harm. Ropeek is actually working on a book about this. 60 years later, we're really not in any better position when it comes to our fear of cancer. And how scared we are of it can have some real health consequences. For starters, cancer is an umbrella term for a hundred different diseases with hundreds of different molecular subtypes. For a person with late-stage pancreatic cancer or a brain tumor, it is a death sentence. For others, like children with leukemia or men with certain types of prostate cancer, the odds are that you'll live long enough to die from something else. Still, fear of cancer is powerful. One 2015 survey by the Harvard School of Public Health found that cancer is the number one disease people are afraid of. It outranked even Alzheimer's, a disease with no good treatments. Not to mention cardiovascular disease, which kills more people. The fear of cancer can be seen in the behavior of patients and doctors. Here's Dr. Otis Brawley. He's the chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society. He wrote a book in 2012 called How We Do Harm, A Doctor Breaks Ranks About Being Sick in America. The fear of cancer drives people to do a lot of things without thought. And unfortunately, one can get harmed by doing some of these things that are supposedly good at reducing risk of cancer. One of these things is actually something we've always thought of as a good thing, screening for cancer. When we say screening, 
we mean testing lots and lots of seemingly healthy people to see if we can spot an early sign of cancer. That way, hopefully, we can nip it in the bud. Everyone's heard of these tests. For breast cancer, there's the mammogram. For prostate cancer, the PSA test. For cervical cancer, the pap smear. No question, these tests have done tremendous good. But there is a downside to aggressive screening of millions of people who are afraid of cancer. For one thing, the tests aren't very accurate. They can cause lots of false positives or false alarms. That leads to overtreatment with surgical procedures and toxic drugs. Not only that, but doctors in certain situations have had financial incentives to be aggressive. That unfortunate situation lines up neatly with patient fears of cancer. When cancer is diagnosed in the U.S., people typically want to pull out all the stops. It's time for battle, to use a common military metaphor. Over the past few years, that aggressive mindset has changed. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, a group focused on screening recommendations, has overhauled much of the screening world. Their word counts. Insurers rely on it when they decide whether to pay for a screening test. The effects of these recommendations are far-reaching. Consider breast cancer screening. Women no longer need to get mammograms every year starting at age 40, according to the task force. It now says women can wait until age 50 and then get a mammogram every other year. There's also a push to scale back prostate cancer screening. Some types of prostate cancer are so slow-growing that they're not a concern. Now that we know that, why perform aggressive surgical procedures or prescribe expensive and toxic drugs? Take lung cancer. Dr. Brawley says lung cancer is one of the better cases for screening. And even in that case, there are major drawbacks. I screen a thousand people who are smokers for lung cancer. 500 of the thousand are going to have a false positive. And 36 out of the thousand are going to have a real positive. That means I'm going to work up over 500 people in order to find the 36 with lung cancer. But screening can come with its own risks. Out of 27,000 smokers screened for lung cancer in one major study, researchers reported 16 patients died within 60 days of screening, usually from complications of the bronchoscopy and lung biopsy procedure. But that same study found that 10 years later, there were 87 fewer lung cancer deaths among smokers who were screened compared with those who weren't. I think people are really surprised to hear about this downside of cancer screening. Even though it has been in the news the last few years, there were so many years, I mean really decades, of positive messaging around the need to go get your mammogram or your PSA test. And it's just, uh, it's hard for people to hear that this might be causing more harm than good. And when you see the sort of cold, hard numbers here, I mean, 16 people lost due to interventions. So sort of an unnecessary interventions maybe that cause these even worse outcomes. So of course, there's good and bad to balance here. Cancer screening has done enormous good and deserves a huge amount of credit for reducing the death rate from prostate cancer, for example, over the past 20 years. Just because there's been overtreatment in the past doesn't mean we should stop looking for cancer. Screening is still a vital tool. But these days, many doctors believe that invasive cancer treatments aren't always the way to go. Cancers are massively heterogeneous. And so to treat them all the same way makes no sense, particularly in prostate cancer. And we know that 
when you diagnose prostate cancer and they have low-risk features, they don't need to be treated right away. And many don't need to be treated. Most, in fact, don't need to be treated at all. That's Dr. Benjamin Davies, an associate professor of urology and a cancer surgeon at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. More and more doctors like him refuse to surgically remove prostates from men with slow-growing, locally confined tumors. Prostate cancer aggressiveness is graded on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most aggressive on what's called the Gleason score. And if you are a 6 or below, those are the slow-growing tumors. The advice in that situation? Keep an eye on it. And it's very hard to tell people that they have cancer and not to worry. They hear cancer and get nervous. Here's Dr. Davies again. It's a challenge, you can imagine, for me to sit down with somebody who's been crying and who's been um, told by other physicians that he needs to have his prostate removed um, to get through that conversation in the 15 to 20 minutes that allotted for him. You know, there's many times at the end of the conversation, I am left with, I don't care, doc, I want it out. This is cultural. People in the U.S. want action. You know, I've had one man look at me and say, Doc, I'm an American. You cannot tell me I have cancer and we should watch it. So, what can we do when our fears overtake us? Even experts on how we deal with risk, like David Ropeek, have been there. So I uh, had several sunburns as a kid before age 18 that caused blistering and pain and went into the dermatologist a few years ago uh, with a suspicious scaly thing on my forehead. And she rather matter-of-factly says, oh, yeah, that's, that's skin cancer. And my heart leapt into my mouth and I blanched. And she saw it in my eyes and my face and said, no, 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 this is basal cell and we can freeze it right off. And I already knew all of that. And it didn't matter. I heard the C word and my heart raced. So what did he do? I remember consciously telling myself, stop and take a few deep breaths, literally because the oxygenation in your bloodstream diminishes the effect of the stress hormones that I was consciously aware of were now coursing through my body and screwing up my ability to like hear my doctor. There's an important thing to note here, which Ropeek points out. Our fear-driven response to risk is completely natural. We're not purely rational beings for whom numbers can trump emotions. We can't help it any more than we can help breathing or having two arms and legs. It's built into us. But we can and we should be aware of it. And both Ropeek and Dr. Schaffner point out that we in the media have a big role to play here. Maybe we need to do a better job of communicating risks to people, both the things we don't fear enough, like the flu, and the things maybe we fear too much, like in the example of cancer. Yeah, and he is right to bring up the media's role in this. We do have a big responsibility in communicating risk in a 
balanced and proportionate sort of way. So, you know, news by definition is often about things that are unusual. It's news when a plane crashes. It's not news when someone gets in a car accident. And that actually warps people's sense of risk. It makes people think that going on an airplane is more dangerous than driving in their car to the grocery store. And that's just not statistically true, not even close. So we just, you know, when we evaluate medical studies, for instance, we just got to take a lot of care in putting things in the right calibrated proportional sense. How much risk are we really talking about in context? That's right. I think you make a really great point. You know, the stories that get coverage and that get attention, they're the sharks. And the snails, they get ignored a lot of the time. So we as journalists and we as patients, maybe it would behoove us all to to start thinking about those two things in relation to one another. Now, one thing that I would say for readers as well is to uh, read stories with a skeptical eye. If there's a one in a thousand chance of something bad happening on a drug, say, and a study shows that that has increased to two in a thousand, well, in a relative sense, that has doubled your risk. And that scares people when that makes headlines that you're facing double the risk of something. But in an absolute sense, it's still just two out of a thousand or one out of 500. Still a pretty slim chance that that bad thing will happen. It's worth taking note, and statisticians need to pay close attention. And, and we do too as journalists, but we need to put it in its proper context. How, how much danger are people really facing? So Luke, are you telling me that anytime I get into a body of water, I really shouldn't be afraid that a shark is going to eat me? Um, yeah, um, but I, you know, I understand the fear of sharks, and I wouldn't blame you if, uh, if you wanted to stay out of the water and work on your tan. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother risk, but we won't get into that for today. <laughs> another time. Thanks for tuning into Signal. We are a production of STAT, a national news publication reporting from the frontiers of health and medicine. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Signal's senior editor is Jeff Delvisio. And we want to hear from you. How have you dealt with fear in medicine? Email us at statpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at statnews hashtag signal. We talked a lot about cancer today. Next episode, we'll dive into all the ways it can adapt, evade, and resist our best efforts to conquer it. Why it really can be such a fearsome disease. Are we finally making headway? And how? Next time on Signal.